this is Paul Dennett in Sydney, Australia. I'm here with Patrick Avenel. Hello, Paul. Hello, this is... And this is episode 12 of Bat and Ball with Pat and Paul. In this episode, we review the Chapel Hadley series that's just gone by with New Zealand winning, talk about the, the controversy that came out with the Mitch Marsh dismissal, and talk about the feud that has erupted between Shane Warne and Steve Waugh. Talk about Australia's squad for the World T20 and do Australians care enough about T20 cricket? And we're also going to have a bit of a go at the silly schedule that Australia has for the rest of the upcoming year in cricket. Well, Australia has lost the Chapel Hadley Trophy two matches to one. Trivia question without notice to you, Patrick. When was the previous Chapel Hadley Trophy played? Geez, that is a very good question. Didn't didn't wasn't the World Cup final? Didn't that count as the Chapel Hadley Trophy? <laughs> no, but it's very close. The World Cup final wasn't deemed significant enough to uh, be be also up for the the Chapel Hadley Trophy. The pool match between Australia and New Zealand was the previous Chapel Hadley Trophy. Oh, so that seems a bit unfair. <laughs> I would have thought that uh, two trophies are always better than one. But uh, congratulations to New Zealand on winning the Chapel Hadley Trophy. I feel as though they deserve some silverware from their, their recent stouches with Australia. Uh, oh, I agree. And, and so I, I think it was quite good to see Brendan McCullum lifted up in his last one, after his last one-day cricket, international game of cricket. Yeah, and I, he deserves all the plaudits he gets. The, um, the, the, the latter half of his career is always an exciting batsman, but when he's just um, kicked it up in a couple of notches in the last few years of his career, and it, it is... Very, very exciting watching him open the batting, and it's opening the batting, and it's it's going to be sad that he's not going to be playing one day cricket anymore. But as Alan Border made the point during the the coverage, I think that he has probably had a one of the bigger impacts on the evolution of one day cricket, possibly not since uh, Kalavatarana and Jay Saria in um, back in the mid nineties when the Sri Lankans really started going hard at the top of the innings. Has there been such a big impact on the way that one day cricket has been played? I don't know if you'd agree with that. I also I do agree with that, but I also think that he uh, modernised and also legitimised T Twenty cricket because I think it was in the very first game of the first IPL he hit a century, and uh, by doing that he said that you know if you play normal cricket shots just very aggressively you can score big runs in T Twenty cricket and he drew people to the game and he's got some absolutely phenomenal stats. And I, when researching for tonight's episode of Bat and Ball, I actually just realised that he's actually been playing his 100th test uh, uh, this week. So his second last test will be his 100th test, and then his 101st will be his final. So I think it's fantastic that he's made it to, to the century of tests. Uh, I, I think there's no doubt that he would be uh, in New Zealand's all-time greatest test and one-day and T20 teams. Yeah, definitely. Um, although Ian Smith, uh, who... I really much, very much enjoy his commentary. I'm always impressed that his strike rate was very, very high. I think his test strike rate is one of the highest of all times. He probably doesn't really qualify for tables because he didn't um, uh, maybe average high enough, but he was a very aggressive player. But yeah, absolutely. Brendan McCullum um, would, would definitely be the, the wicket keeper that you choose, even though he's no longer playing as keeper. Um, well, you could New so. Zealand usually have about half a dozen keepers every yeah, side there. They send out. You could choose a very competitive wicket keeping 11 for. <laughs> for New Zealand, they they, um, they definitely seem to be putting the gloves in the hands of every child that's coming through. <laughs> and I also like, I think Brendan McCullum, I like his attitude to the game. We've discussed this before that you and I 
think that it's ridiculous to criticise them for not being nasty enough, and that that he's, he's, he's has a, he has a very refreshing attitude to the game, and under his captaincy, New Zealand have had a great deal of success. Yeah, I also get the feeling he'd be quite a handy man to have a beer with after the game. Yeah, I agree. Some modern cricketers, you can't really say that about them. You get the feeling that they'd be um, the conversation would get a little bit tired very quickly. <laughs> I think the other thing about Chapel Hadley is that. It, We've talked about this again before, that one-day cricket outside the World Cup and maybe to an extent the Champions Trophy is needing context and is needing a reason for series not to just become instantly forgettable. At least the Chapel Hadley Trophy gives it something. It would be a lot better, in my opinion, if they could have managed to have this tournament involving four or five teams and have a little mini World Cup in New Zealand. That would have been scintillating, but short of that... At least this is something, and they should build on it and try and hold it more regularly than they have in the past. Yeah, I agree. I think that the proximity of the two countries means that it can't be too hard to organise at, at absolute worst uh, biennial tournament, so once every two years. But I think you should be able to do it every year, and I don't see why you can't do three matches in Australia, three matches in New Zealand. Best of six, I know, isn't ideal in cricket, but you know, there's always a chance one of them will be washed out or there'll be... Uh, or if it's a three-all draw, that's fine as well. And I think that, that that these are the matches that are most entertaining in terms of one-day cricket at the moment. And I think that we need to uh, get them on, get as many as them on the agenda as possible. I think it's a series that would benefit from being locked in every year at the same time, mm. whether that be November or, or wherever. But if you always knew that it, this week, you know, the third week of November, or whatever it was that that was going to be on, that would be that would be helpful. But the, the proximity of the two nations is, as you say, uh, it's amazing they don't play more often. But this upcoming couple of weeks now where we're going to be playing um, two test matches for two nations, I don't know if you saw my tweet today, but in the next two weeks, Australia and New Zealand will play more test matches, precisely double the number of test matches that they played in the first 96 years of the history of test cricket. Well, I think that, I think that that's a good thing. I think that, uh, you know... The the these matches are I, I think are quite interesting. I also think that uh, we we spoke about this in the last pod that the summer of cricket in, in Australia ended in January and there was a lot of cricket with six tests and uh, the the series against India and the Big Bash. But having having the team leave our shores for New Zealand and then South Africa and then India, my God, it, it's a packed calendar. If you thought that there was going to be rest from cricket and cricket in prime time, then you're definitely wrong. It's it's continuing with a relentless pace, as it has for I mean forever it seems now. Um, this is something that we're actually going to discuss uh, in a, at a little bit of length in the, in the podcast. But I've got some some views on it that cricket does need an off season, and uh, for the fans, if, if if for nobody else, you need to have a a little bit of time away from the game to actually to actually want it to be there more. But one of the issues that we'll turn our attention to during the, the Chapel Hadley Trophy was um, in the final match, and it could have been telling. I think Mitchell Marsh, who batted really, really well, uh, quite a breath of fresh air in terms of how his career is going, that the promise that everyone has talked about seemed to really start to be on, on, on show in this series. But he was Australia's last chance of winning the deciding match, and he drove a ball... Uh, which looked like live that it hit his boot and hit the ground, went back to the bowler who, in a very, very gentle way, appealed to the umpire and was sort of given a matter, given not out as a, uh, almost implicitly, 
and then um, no one really complained. But then when the, the replay came up on the big screen, it became clear that the ball had not hit the ground at all, that Marsh had hit it straight onto his boot. Um, so at that point, with the crowd baying for it and the umpires seeing it, they then called for an umpire's review and Marsh was duly given out. The Australians were fuming about this um, and, as I said, Australia were probably going to lose anyway, but I think this made it all but certain. Uh, what did you think at all, Patrick? Well, uh, I, first of all, I thought that it was definitely out and so I, I was quite surprised at the, it, so much controversy was built up around it. If if he if he wasn't out, if it was a bump ball, then certainly I could understand why there would be a lot of controversy because Australia was still in a, a moderately competitive position, six for one sixty four, uh, chasing down uh, two hundred and forty seven with seventeen overs to go. So you know it was it was run a ball territory, but they Mitchell Marsh was set, and uh, I I was also a little bit confused by the uh, you mentioned that it's a gentle appeal and. Uh, it, it was quite a gen- gentle appeal from from Henry, the bowler. But as the laws of cricket state, any appeal is equal to any other appeal. So we have been conditioned by watching uh, cricket on TV with the exuberant commentators talking about uh, a good appeal or a strong appeal or it, it wasn't a very good appeal. Like you see an LBW decision where Glenn McGrath would go up with both hands, you'd have six guys in the slips in the keeper, and it would be a very convincing appeal for an LBW or a court behind. And then you might, on the other side of that, have an appeal where it's just the bowler putting his hand up or just the wicket keeper putting their hand up, you know, often to try and convince the, the umpire not to give a wide in a one-day international. Well, those two appeals count exactly the same in the laws of cricket. There's nothing in the laws of cricket that says that the volume or the length of an appeal should have an indication on whether the batsman is out or not. So I thought it was very poor on-ground umpiring that it, that the you know the the, the lackluster appeal as it was from from Henry didn't immediately trigger the review or a serious discussion about whether he was out because I thought it was quite clear that he was out. I think um, I agree with you, although I, I couldn't say live that I thought it was out. I thought that it looked interesting, and it was one of these ones that. When he when the bowler appealed, I just assumed that they would consult and and send it upstairs because why wouldn't you? It really irritates me when usually it's with with a run out when if the if the umpire calls for it and it turns out that the batsman was in by a meter. I, I get irritated when the commentators criticise the on field umpire for for wasting time or if the on field umpire doesn't call for the third umpire and gives him out and he's out by three centimetres and the umpire and the, the commentators praise the on-field umpire because he's got the decision right. You know, he's, he's made a decision and that's what he's paid to do. I find that irritating as well. I think that all appeals to the run-out should be compulsorily sent up to the third umpire. And I think in this case, that, that should be the case with, with, with bump ball catches like this, that they, they should have sent it up to the umpire. I suppose your point around the how um, enthusiastic the appeal is, when it's just prior to TB having any involvement, the umpire knowing that um, the benefit of the doubt, which is goes to the batsman, that's implicit within the laws, although it's not explicit within the laws, if the, if the fielding side has doubt, then the umpire has to think, well, um, you know, I'd, be, I'd be silly to give that out because they've already sort of given me the benefit, uh, the indication of a benefit of doubt already. And I think that if I was an umpire and um, a bowler gave a half-hearted appeal, um, I'd be very reluctant to give it out. But this is different because you can actually go to the technology here. Yeah. Also, I, 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 
If you go back to the test before, we're going back a long way now, listeners, if you go back to the test before Steve Waugh scored uh, the century of the final ball against England at the SSG, I, I he, remember was, that. <laughs> he was involved in an innings which some people have described as his worst ever innings, and it was to chase down a, a modest total uh, against England at the MCG in the Boxing Day test. And Australia was sort of heading towards, I haven't looked up the scores, but probably something like 180 to win. And they were four or five down. And there was always that feeling that Australia had a problem chasing uh, middling totals as we had in the past. And Steve Waugh, he played an absolute ripper of a cover drive. He hit the cover off it and um, uh, Nasser Hussain took the most blinding catch and it was a no ball. And so that, that was the first ball of the over. And then the second ball of the over, he was actually caught behind. But everybody yep. thought the ball had swung away from the bat instead of taking what, looked, what actually turned out to be quite a thick edge. And uh, that, that happened, and then they showed a replay. And I, I think the, the wicketkeeper on that tour, Paul's memory might be better than mine, uh, the Papua New Guinean-born keeper was there for a while. No, uh, Garrett Jones. Yes. I, I, think, I think it was still Alex Stewart. Oh. Well, the wicketkeeper at the time, having seen the replay, and before the next ball was bowled, uh, appealed. And as a, as a qualified umpire, I thought that the umpire should have given him out because the next, the next phase of the game of cricket doesn't start until the next ball is bowled. You have until the next ball is bowled to, to, to appeal for a wicket in cricket. And so I couldn't believe that he wasn't given out because he clearly hit it. Yeah, but the only way that they knew that it was out was from seeing it on the big screen. Oh, that and... should be enough, shouldn't it? Well, I agree that it should be enough, but it's not. And that, um, and this is, touches on Smith's anger as to what happened here, that there's protocols in place for when a review is allowed. Back in 2002, there were no um, allowance for a review. And so, you know, if, you know, if they saw that one, saw that he'd hit it off the big screen and then decided to give it out, then the only logical thing would be for them to wait for the big screen for every single one, and it just can't be done. So Smith's, I think, pointing out the same thing here, that this one, the umpires were influenced outside of the normal way that, that technology has, is supposed to be allowed into the game. I have a bit of sympathy for them, uh, for the Aussies in this case, but my sympathy is you know, minute compared to my pleasure that the ultimately the correct decision was arrived at. Back in that... Um, 2002 innings of Steve Waugh. I remember that well because he was um, he scored 70 odd in the first innings, which looked like it was going to be enough to sal- salvage his spot in the side. Then he got out for 70, I think, um, uh, early the next morning, and that that 70 odd that he scored was on a public holiday. And then the next morning, when he was 70 not out was a day at work, and I thought, oh, well, he's going to score 100 here, and I'm not going to be able to watch it. So I remember I got into work at, I think, 4 in the morning and sent my boss an email at the time saying, I'm here now. I'm going to work from 4 till 11 and then have a five-hour lunch break. Um, <laughs> my boss thought, whenever I arrived at work at 8, they thought, this guy's a lunatic. And then, anyway, at 11, Steve all got out first ball. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's interesting you tell that story because I, for, for the um, when he scored the century off the last ball at Sydney, I know you were there that day. I had tickets to the next day, uh, and uh, so he scores the century. I think he goes to 102 with that four, and I was there with my mum the next day, and we're thinking, oh, you know, we're going to see Steve Wall crack a double century. <laughs> I think he got our first ball of, of 
I think it was the fourth the, or the fifth. Yeah, it was definitely the first over. He didn't add the seven eight score. And he, yep. we all got the big collective groan at, you know, we got to cheer him off knowing that he uh, retained his spot for the next tour. But it was all a bit of a letdown for the people there. Although we, I think we saw Adam Gilchrist score a century that day. It was a sparkling hundred. Yeah, he, was, he, was, he had scored a fair bit the night before, but then he, he went on with it at great speed that, that next day. Yeah. Um, back to that 2002, just thinking about it. Um, so I was then at work in the afternoon thinking, well, I'm half asleep because I've got been <laughs> since the crack of dawn. And at about five o'clock, my, my phone rang. It was, my landline rang. It was my friend saying, oh, by the way, um, we're just we're just driving by your office in a few minutes' time. Um, we're going to pick you up. We're going to go to Melbourne, and we're going to watch the, the cricket tomorrow. Because I think it must have been a Friday, um, so the public holidays have been on the lead up to that. So I ended up that night, having been exhausted all day. Uh, we drove all the way down to Albury, spent the night in Albury, uh, which is on the border between New South Wales and Victoria. And the next morning, we drove down straight into the car park of the MCG and walked in and um, saw that day's play. So that was um, <laughs> quite a full day for me. Now, uh, classic segue alert, listeners. We're just discussing great moments from Steve Waugh's career, and uh, he's been in the limelight again this week, Paul. <laughs> yes. The great man, and he—I don't think if you, if you started the week by saying Steve Waugh will be headline news, what what will happen for that for for it to reach that point? I don't think anyone would have suggested this was the reason. I would have hoped that it was that he got an IPL contract. Yeah, I I would have just hoped that he. We're bringing back sainthoods and knighthoods, and he's getting both. No, yeah. it was uh, Shane Warne in the jungle decided to see off on him, which uh, it, it certainly took a lot of people by surprise. And I don't think Shane Warne has made too many friends out of this this exercise in seventeen uh, year old opprobrium. The thing that's annoying is that Warne, because he's presumably not really getting all that much news possibly doesn't realise that this has been a spectacular failure of public relations on his, his behalf. When you read below the line and you read the comments on any given story, which you really shouldn't do because there's usually some not, terrible comments. I don't read the comments below these pods. That's for certain. Has there ever been one? I've got to this bit out. Anyway, um, and it was amazing that they were virtually uniformly in favour of Steve Waugh, and even just the way that Steve Waugh reacted by saying, I'm not going to justify his comments with a response. That was a very classy a classy response. But to the point in hand that Warren saying that Steve Waugh was the most selfish cricketer that he ever played against, ever played with, and that he was angry um, and bitter about the fact that Steve Waugh dropped Shane Warren before the fourth Test match of the 1999 Australia-West Indies series in West Indies. I remember that vividly at the time, because Steve Waugh had just taken over as captain. Um, Shane Warne had been out injured for a long period of time. He'd come back in for the fifth test of the Ashes in the summer that had just gone by. I think he only took one wicket in that match. Stuart McGill maybe took two, I don't know, but Stuart McGill took plenty and Warne didn't bowl all that well. Then in the first three test matches of the the, the Windy series, Warne, I looked it up, he's taken, he took two for 268, an average of 134. And Australia were down 2-1, so they needed to win the fourth test to draw the series and um, retain the trophy. They had Colin Miller in the side as well, who 
was, was sort of crying out for selection. And it was absolutely the right thing to do. But I remember at the time thinking they won't have the courage to drop Warren, even though they should, notwithstanding the fact that he's a champion and one of the greatest bowlers the game's ever seen. He was the wrong player to be picked going into that fourth test match. And I think it showed what a, what a remarkable leader Steve Waugh was, that he had the guts to make the call. Australia won the fourth test match, not by all that much. Um, Colin Miller and McGill played pretty well. And if it, looking back at the scorecards, it was, if Warren had been in there and had been bowling at the standard that he was, who knows? Maybe um, maybe we wouldn't have won it. And, and have, I don't know exactly when the... Um, Shane Warren have been able to play the gutsy 43 that Colin Miller did at the end of Australia's first innings to... Well, it's another cut out our score. He did he did score quite a few little sort of uh, a few twenties throughout the series, Warren. So he had done a little bit with the bat, but yeah, that um, Miller Miller's first innings effort was pretty significant. Um, but the point I'm making is that if Steve Waugh had picked Warren, and if Warren had played and Australia had lost that match, there's um, who knows what sort of mindset Warren would have been in going into the World Cup. I presume he still would have been picked in the World Cup, but um, the World Cup that immediately followed, Australia won, uh, largely because of the brilliance of Steve Waugh, number one, and Shane Warne, number two. So, gosh, you know, you've had such success together. It happened 16, 17 years ago. He was completely right in making the decision. He obviously hated making it. He made it for the right reasons. Even if Shane Warne thinks that, that he should have played, um, you've got to respect that the decision was made in the right in the right spirit, and then it was 17 years ago. As for the whole Steve Waugh being a selfish player, um, it's something that Ian Chappell has spouted out for, for, for years now, and I just don't. I've never really seen the evidence for it. No, I've never really seen it either. I mean, uh, I, I, I was in high school while Steve Waugh was going through his golden golden period, and I remember thinking that he's the player you want to go out there and bat to save your life. He's the batsman who won't go out there and try and hit the first ball for six. He's the, the batsman who, in an era when stylish players were starting to come through, you think of Gilchrist, uh, Greg Blewett, uh, uh, even even Mark War, and then Ricky Ponning, Michael Clark, all those players that came through. He was always the more dogged, determined one. He was always the player who was playing the sort of you know the old style Test cricket, where he was prepared to get battered and bruised. And I think that's what people liked about him. In fact, for me, he was one of the most selfless players I ever saw. Maybe Alan Border was the other one. I, I just think it's such a strange accusation to make that isn't backed up by any observable facts, unless there's some secret dressing room uh, personality about Steve Waugh that only Shane Warner's observed. I think it was ridiculous. Also, for those interested, I know a little bit about the way these sort of TV shows work. There's absolutely no doubt that in the lead-up to him joining the I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here team, it would have been agreed in his contract that he would have had to do something like this, that he would have had to uh, come up with something controversial and be controversial. They're not going to pay him all that money to just sit in the jungle and you know smoke cigarettes and chat to Brendan Favola. I agree, absolutely. And um, I think that in this case, Warren has pulled has pulled the wrong lever. Um, now, the specific allegation of selfishness, I think, stems from Steve Waugh's um, propensity to get not outs and his willingness to take singles and expose the tail. Um, now, 
there was a, I think a match that might have set Ian Chappell off, and I'm not, I haven't looked up the scorecard, but it's a match I remember from 1998-99. It was the, the, the Boxing Day Test match. War was not out in both innings, and Australia lost by about 15 runs. And um, in the first innings, he was batting with, I think, McGill at number 11. Uh, he started slogging his way through the 70s and 80s because he had number 11 at the other end, um, aggressively got his way to 100, and then kind of then went back to playing normally. Um, uh, and, and McGill then played a little blinder and scored 40 or 50, and sort of war was sort of feeding in the strike. And maybe Ciappelli could have made the accusation, well, why did you play so aggressively and then go back into your shell? You obviously just wanted to get your 100. And I think there's probably a little bit of truth to that. But, I mean, every cricketer does that. The, 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 the notion of getting 100 is such a, um, such a special thing. Everyone's a little bit selfish when they get towards 100. Then in the second innings, war was at the other end when a collapse occurred. Australia didn't need many to win. And there was just a, a monumental collapse. And War did the same thing. He took singles and exposed you know, 8, 9, and 10, and 11 to, to the strike. But War could argue. That's what he always did because his attitude was these guys have a bit of talent, they work hard on their batting, and give them a little bit of confidence. They're just as likely to flourish, and that way we'll have a successful partnership. And it, it bore fruit on many occasions, as evidenced by the first innings when he and McGill put on plenty. And I think he was just applying the same attitude as you do, as you always had. The idea that he thought, oh, well, you know, I can get myself a nice little 15 not out here while Australia lose. I mean, that's just lunatic. You know, lunatic. I mean, it's, if, if it is this match, and I think it is, that Ciappelli and, and Warren have hardened their hearts towards war. It's a bit weird that a bloke who didn't get out in either innings um, single-handedly kept Australia in the game. That's the match that you're, you know, regarding him as a, as a selfish player. Um, look. I think it's just, just just a bit of nonsense. A friend of mine, uh, Mark Olson, has sent me a couple of articles uh, from back a few years ago. One that was interesting was that Shane Warne, in about 2007 or eight or around about then, did one of these lists of the greatest cricketers that he'd ever played with. And as always, he put Steve Waugh far, far <laughs> lower down the list than he should have been. I think Steve Waugh was um, only one above... Um, he was only one above... Um, Tim May or something ridiculous like that. He had um, Stephen Fleming from New Zealand rated higher than him. And this caused a bit of a stir. And then he um, then released a book where he had his top 100 cricketers. And on the Steve Waugh chapter, he began it by saying, <clears throat> when I ranked Steve Waugh somewhere in the 20s for my list in the, in the Times, it caused a bit of a stir in Australia, though Waugh himself was fine. People tried to suggest there was a problem between us when in actual fact, we are friends. They also accused me of jealousy because he succeeded Mark Taylor as captain and I was appointed vice-captain. That wasn't right either. So it's nice to have an opportunity to write about Steve in a bit more depth and maybe set a few things straight once and for all. And he goes on. But it's, it's interesting that um, it seems like something's happened subsequent to that that has, um, you know, um, changed his mind. After Australia finishes its tour of New Zealand and then goes over to South Africa for a very short and idiosyncratic tour, we then head to India for the World T20, which starts on 18 March. Not long to go now. And our squad for that tournament is uh, captained by Steve Smith. Dave Warner is his deputy. And then there's Ashton Agar, Nathan Coulton-Isle, Aaron Finch, John Hastings, 
Josh Hazelwood, James Faulkner, Usman Khawaja, Mitchell March, Glenn Maxwell, Peter Neville as the wicketkeeper, Andrew Ty, Shane Watson, and Adam Zampa. So that's our World T20 squad. Paul, we were talking a little bit beforehand that it seems as though Australia, we still don't seem to take this tournament very seriously. Do you think that's a squad that can win us this tournament? I think it, I think it is, and I think that the squad is better than I had feared. I think that the omission of Tate is a nod towards common sense, and I like the fact that I have the, the viewpoint that if you're going to go to India, then the only out-and-out fast bowlers who, you know, if, if they don't do anything else other than bowl fast, they have to be at kind of Dennis Lilly, Glenn McGrath standard. And Hazelwood is not at that standard yet, but I think he's close enough to say um, he's worthy of his selection in the side, but I'm pleased they didn't take... Uh, I think Kane Richardson may be under an injury cloud, but I think taking Richardson or, or Boland would have been a significant mistake because I think those kind of um, B-grade um, fast bowlers will just get absolutely launched in, in India. Now, um, you know, John Hastings, I think, has bowled pretty well, um, and I think he deserves his spot in there and can bat as well. I wouldn't have picked Nathan Coulter-Nile for the, the reasons as described above, but at least he can bat. Um, but I, I think that he's someone who could get um, hammered quite a lot. So personally, I'd be going in with the um, as many all-rounders as possible, preferably ones who can bowl a bit of dirty off-spin, and then power power hitters. And on that regard, I think it's a pity that Chris Lynn was was left out of the side. Yeah, the uh, or tra- and Travis Head is the other is the other omission. The I think it's it's quite a strong squad as well. There's a couple of Old faces. There's certainly Shane Watson that century in in the third T uh, Twenty against India really cemented his place in the side. In case it was, if it was any in any doubt, I think that Australia the plan is to play uh, Faulkner and Marsh as much as possible and Watson. So you've got three essentially bowling all rounders, but very good hitters of the ball. Ashton Agar I think is an interesting selection. He hasn't actually bowled that much for Western Australia in the Big Bash. He was used primarily as a, as a batsman. And so I think that he could be a really interesting player for Australia in this tournament. If he gets his off-spinners... Is he off-spinner? I can never remember. Yeah, if he gets his off-spins working regularly... Remember, we only saw him for a glimpse in that in those test series. Uh, if he gets his spinners uh, working well, and, and he's very good straight down the ground, which is very important in India with the very short boundaries, I think he could work really well. Uh I think dropping Matthew Wade was the right decision. He, he just wasn't doing enough with the bat, and that's how you judge wicket keepers. Peter yep. Neville uh, is a very good first-class cricketer. He's yet to establish himself as, as a limited overs batsman, but I think that they, they're probably right to take him instead of one of the state whackers of the ball. Uh, I think Peter Neville's experience playing for Australia will help in, in this sort of tournament. He's very calm, and he has got... He's, you're right, he hasn't approved himself at, inter- at one day level, but he's shown enough to show that he can hit the ball. i just got to correct myself. I've been looking at Andrew Ty this whole time and thinking that he was Travis Head. Um, <laughs> I don't know why that's the case, but um, I'm very disappointed to realise that he's actually Andrew Ty and not Travis Head. Mm. Um, I, I think Travis Head should have been in the side for his, one, for his um, ball striking ability, but he's got that off spin that you just need, that... that you know, the stuff that Jadeja bowls so well for India. I remember... That's what... Sorry, I remember Aravinda De Silva used to bowl the most nagging off-spinners as well. I think Ranatunga used to bowl. Oh, he did you know. too, yeah. And, and, 
Yeah, but to be quite honest, I, I think that, that Darren Lehman, even at this age, would be a very handy player over there. Like just, you know, he can bat, obviously, but then he just bowls that absolute balls with absolutely nothing on it. Andrew Ty, oh, look, he's not the worst. I like how he has lots of change-ups and does this and that, and he can be quite tricky, but I put him a little bit in the Sean Tate category that he might win you one game out of 10. Tate might win you one game out of maybe 10,000, but um, <laughs> Ty might win you one game out of 10, but he might lose you um, a few games as well. I, I think that he's a bit of a risk and not one that I would have been um, willing to take. I, I think it's a pity that Lynn and, and, and Head aren't there, but especially Head because he could bowl the offspin as well. I think Zampa's not a bad selection. He bowled pretty well the other day, albeit on a pitch that probably did favour a little bit of spin. Um, but you're going to India, you might as well take mm. a, you know, It's spin that's going, to, it's going to be fairly definitive. And we're playing two matches in Mahali, in the um, a very, 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 very spin-friendly uh, venue, although um, the, the venues for this tournament are actually up in the air a little bit. Nothing's been confirmed yet. Tickets haven't, haven't gone on sale. It's a bit of a, a debacle right now. But I think that um, that squad is not too bad. But I think that your point right at the start of this is true, that um, certainly people in Australia really don't care about the World T20. And I think that's because we're fairly astute sports fans, that we, we, we don't... Um, give something credibility just for the sake of it. There's a World Cup in cricket. Um, there are premium test matches that we, we rate highly. We all sort of think of international T20 as a little bit of a joke. And I think most Australians are unaware that this is, that this is on. But we've got to get with the rest of the world. The rest of the world, um, you know, people talk about this as a World Cup rather than the World T20. It's a semantics, I know. But in time to come, I'm sure that people will say, oh, you know, um, how come Australia aren't winning these winning these tournaments? We might as well start. And I think if the people of Australia don't care about it all that much, I think that the you know the scheduling of having two test matches coming up in New Zealand now, and then we're going over to play T um, Twenty games in South Africa. It's a bizarre thing that our warm up to the T Twenty World Cup has been an Australian summer, which we can't avoid. Then test matches and one day games in New Zealand, followed by T Twenties in South Africa. Why not? Play them in India. Forgo whatever revenue, you know, compensate the South African Cricket Board and say to India, could we please play uh, these games over there? And I'm sure they'd be fine for it. And that's, you know, I have to be honest, be. I find these three T20s in South Africa to be such a strange piece of scheduling. I mean, it's a long way to go to play uh, nine hours of cricket. And it's, it's, the Super 15 will be well and truly underway by that stage. And so the South African populace's attention will be on everything but cricket. Uh, I I just think it's such so weird. I, I don't get that at all. Uh, I, I mean, I, I understand touring South Africa. Uh, a proper tour with Tests in one day as in T20s is always fantastic. It's great TV times as well in Australia. But I find this just weird that we're going over there to play three T20s. I I, I would have preferred if we just scheduled three. T20s against Sri Lanka or against South Africa in India, just so that we can uh, acclimate ourselves to the Indian conditions. I just looked from when Australia played South Africa right back in November of 2014, at the beginning of the sort of warm-up to the World Cup. There's been tournament after tournament after tournament. It's just been almost non-stop. You know, no wonder Darren Lemons had got deep vein thrombosis. He'd been flying here, there and everywhere every day. And so... After this, so we're playing New Zealand, then we're playing those matches against South Africa, then we've got the World T20, then there's the Indian Premier League, but then we're playing um, 
were taking part in a tri-series against the West Indies and South Africa in the West Indies in June. We're going to play six games plus a final. And then in July, um, this scarcely seems believable, but it's, it's, it's written down, three tests, five one-days and two T20s in Sri Lanka. From, from November 2014 through to, to July 2016, if you were playing all formats of the game, which <laughs> as a spectator we tend to do, <laughs> it, it just, you know, there's, there's just no break. Well, the, that tour of the West Indies is just remarkable that we're going back there only 12 months after our, our two tests. There's no structure and there's no, there's no intelligence being used when divining when the teams play, which I find remarkable considering there are only really 10 countries that you have to put together in a matrix to, to spit out a schedule. Well, that's a wrap of this edition of Bat and Ball with Pat and Paul. By the time this comes uh, comes out, I would say that day one of the first test match between New Zealand and Australia would have been finished. So it's always very um, a dicey game to be making predictions, given that that's the case. But nevertheless, I think Australia do deserve to be favourites. It's been um, quite a period of dominance that they've had over New Zealand, albeit in the not too many matches that they've played. Um, New Zealand haven't beaten Australia in New Zealand since 1993. I think Australia are just a little bit better, even taking into account the home conditions, but an upset such as it was it wouldn't surprise me at all. What do you think, Patrick? I think that uh, Brendan McCullum's playing his 100th test. I think he's he's departing the international cricket scene. I think that New Zealand has everything to play for, and I think Australia might be a little bit jaded after a very long and very successful summer. And I think that New Zealand are going to win the first test and they're going to sneak a draw in the second. Well, it'll be interesting to see. Australia's stated aim is to improve their away away performances. This is a very good opportunity to do that. But as you said, New Zealand will certainly be no pushover. If you want to catch up with me, I tweet at the underscore summer underscore game. And you can find me at Patrick Avenal and I blog ironically at completepatrick.com. See you next time. See you for listening.